Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. This year, in recognition of Domestic Violence Awareness Month, the Engendered Collective hosted a series of community conversations to bring greater awareness to domestic abuse and gender-based violence. Today's conversation deals with the intersection of domestic violence and systemic sexism and racism in communities of color. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Terry Yuan. I am the founder of the Engendered Collective. I'm a survivor. I'm an activist. And most of all, I'm an intersectional feminist. We started this organization of survivors, advocates, and pro-feminist allies as a way to come together in learning and advocacy. So the three pillars of our organization is founded on number one, knowledge building and knowledge sharing. We have a weekly podcast called Engendered this community conversation, as well as the set of conversations that we're having throughout the month of October for Domestic Violence Awareness Month are part of that knowledge building and knowledge sharing pillar as well. We have a platform where we engage in building community and sharing resources. The second pillar is that of collective care and healing. So we have weekly survivors offering support virtual groups. And we also are very interested in sharing resources around uh, trauma and helping advocates who are working in the space to be trauma-informed in their practice. And the third pillar is advocacy to end sexism and to increase accountability for um, violence and oppression and exploitation that's rooted in sexism. So domestic violence is one of them. And we have a working group on course of control where we have members from all over the world, including Europe and Australia, working to look at the criminal justice system and the social service uh, system that we have in the U.S. and hopefully create a blueprint for building accountability, not just within the criminal justice system, but hopefully in education and other areas as well. So with that, I'm going to get started. Uh, We have the pleasure of having three survivors who are members of the Engender Collective. We part of our conversation today, Elizabeth Stewart-Williams, Roman James, and Shia Joyner. Uh, And in fact, Shia Joyner's uh, episode um, on the the Gender Podcast just was released yesterday if you want to hear a deeper dive into her story. Um, So I'm going to now ask that each panelist give a brief intro to who they are. Uh, Liz is a, a protective mom and founder of Liz Yvonne Dispute Resolution Services, and I'm going to turn it to you just to give um, more richer um, background into who you are. Hi, everyone. Uh, Again, my name is Elizabeth Stewart-Williams. First, foremost, I am a single mother of two beautiful children, and I am an activist advocate within family court. And I was uh, going through my own personal survival after leaving my abuser course of control was really used by him through the family court system. And I've been in family court for over 12 years now. And from that, I decided to further my education and obtain knowledge on how to stop such abuse 
but also to move forward and um, just help people avoid uh, a corrupt system that I view as corrupt. Um, So I am a family court investment mediator, arbitrator, and I am so excited to be here. Thank you. And we're going to turn it now to Roman. Hi, everyone. My name is Roman James. I am a by choice single parent of a now seven year old daughter. And I have been radicalized to activism or activist building and moving through the family courts here in LA County. I have been experiencing this since two weeks after my daughter's birth. I have been through nine judges in three different jurisdictions uh, in approximately eight departments as a result of the domestic terrorist who is using institutions, whether it be the courts or law enforcement, to uh, maintain his control over me. As a result, I have come to understand uh, the institutional betrayal that uh, is very much a gendered issue. I have come to understand my experience is complicated by the fact that I am an African-American woman and um, have come to recognize through my experience of patriarchy just how uh, endemic patriarchy is to all of our systems that were founded in British colonialism, whether it's the UK, the United States, Canada, or Australia, we are all uniquely positioned for abuse through these systems. And I'm doing my best to uh, inform and motivate uh, against fear of the system and just fight back. Great. Thank you so much. And finally, Shia. Hello, everyone. It is such a pleasure to be here. Um, My name is Shia Joyner. I am the single parent of two beautiful teenagers. One is 14, one is 16. Similar to you, Roman, I am in a space where I am powered to break these patriarchal systems and re-educate all of us on how we collectively can work together to make a difference in these systems. Um, My current experience is um, I'm experiencing the course of patrol through my children which, you know, this element of abuse, it, it never really stops is what I'm learning currently. And yes, it, it, it's, a, it's a new week and it's a new um, element I'm dealing with within this space. On my day to day, I've used my survivorship. It's empowered me to create a social impact brand where I make and create beauty products and wellness products. And I donate the se- parts of the sale of these products to help women in situations similar to myself. So I am honored to be here and share this space with all of you beautiful women. And um, thank you, Terry, so much. Well, thank you, panelists, um, for that brief intro. So now we are going to get started. This uh, um, concept of race and gender and its intersection has played out a lot in the media. And um, yesterday in the conversation that I had with Shia in the podcast, there was a lot of it that. I thought was personally informed by um, her background growing up. So I want to start with Shia in terms of 
what role did your personal background and childhood play in terms of being setting you up for models of relationships, either healthy or unhealthy? You know, it's interesting you asked me that. I was just talking to my daughter about this last night. I grew up in a household where I saw domestic violence and I got to see the duality of two different parts of an abuser. I saw my dad who was extremely abusive to my mother physically and verbally, but to me, he was a loving father. He was, you know, he's no longer living, but I just saw the beauty and strength of a black man that, you know, supported his family and worked hard. I only saw the positive elements of his personality and that conditioned me within dating to believe that the duality of this, the dark side of a man, there's always this beautiful side in him that you can just always kind of just focus on and ignore the bad. Um, it conditioned me to believe that, you know, sometimes you might get slapped a couple of times and that's okay. As the woman that I am now, I know that that is never okay. And uh, it's never anything you should accept. The reason why this has come up with my daughter is because she's turning 14 in two weeks and she's had her first boyfriend and, you know, she's going through the roller coaster of being a young girl in this socially distanced climate that we live in. And her father, who I'm just now learning out, is preaching that I'm a complete liar and none of this stuff ever happened. It's pushed me to a space to have to talk to her about everything about my childhood to show her that you deserve better. And the reason why I've chosen to move all the way from Atlanta to New York to move ourselves away from this was to give you, you know, the space where you don't have to see the violence. You can only see the beautiful parts of your father. But what I'm now realizing is that my childhood was an illusion. It was an illusion. And I chose to own, and I, I love my father dearly and it pains me to say it, but he was a very violent man to my mother. And there's no other way to uh, condition my mind to believe anything other than that. He was a violent man. And I would never teach my daughter to see the duality of the, the violence and the greatness of this man. I would tell her to run. So my child, it is interesting you bring up that question, Terry, because all last night, my sister and I just spent time talking to my daughter about it because the narrative now is that your mother is a complete liar. I never hit her. Oh yes, I must, I might've roughed her up a little bit, but I never hit her. So yeah. Well, you know, that narrative of women being liars and not to be believed isn't just true for the black community. Of course, it's true for women in general. Um, so I'd love to hear from Liz next in terms of your um, role models for relationships and what ways did your background and childhood uh, help inform your perspective on what love means and whether or not similar to Shia that included sometimes uh, once in a while a slap here and there quote unquote so mine is actually completely different I my dad my mom like I saw love all my life my dad is a licensed professional counselor like I wasn't I was brought up where a man sits down and talks to you. I even tell him, and, and he's also um, a preacher. So I come from a family full of preachers and um, they're loving. And it wasn't, I wasn't in the type of family. A lot of times preacher kids, they 
it's rough for a lot of them, but I, we were always considered the exception. But I even told him, I said, I, I believe because I grew up in such a loving home and seeing how he was just there for my mom and therefore us as kids getting with. So my abuser actually got to me through church mm-hmm. and the element, especially within the black community, we are it, there's some type of spiritual strength that's there. And the big thing in church is you don't put your business out in the street. And so that's the element I was able to recognize. Uh, he doesn't love me, but I stayed because you don't leave and you don't, you know, there's that faith element that comes into play and you don't put your business out in the street. That's just a no, no. That's just something that you don't do. So, so even though I had this great example at the same time in dealing with the church aspect of it, I was taught to, and, and that's just with black culture, you're, you're not taught to snitch. You're not taught to put that information out there. You are, um, and it's a lot of historical things with that, that comes along with that, uh, which I know we can discuss later, but um, specifically that was my background, loving family, never, you know, my parents, even now they act like teenagers. It's like, Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) And so I was able to know what love looks like, but I was not taught, you know, when it's not love, how do you handle it? Mm. And Roman, what about you? Um, What was your conception of what love should be and should not be? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting listening to Shia and Liz because bringing my story into it, we all are so very different. We're on the spectrum. I was raised by a single parent and I come from a matriarchy. I come from women who possessed guns and would use them. I come from a grandmother who was four foot 11 named Mo, or everybody referred to her as Mo, who everybody knew not to mess with. I come from a mother who packed a pistol in her purse, and her name was Francine, and everybody took to calling her Frank James because she carried a gun. And so I didn't know what abuse looked like because I didn't come from women who tolerated abuse. My mother had a scar in the back of her head from jumping on a man who was abusing her friend. I have defended friend, a, a roommate, come to find out she wasn't a friend, but behind her boyfriend, you know, having an extramarital, whatever, or not extramarital, but an extra liaison. So for me, I didn't know what it looked like to be abused because I came from very empowered women. I came from examples of women in my community who were the VP of Bank of America or a junior exec at Texaco, or my mother was a business owner. She owned her own salon. What I realized is that I was dating my mother. My mother was very controlling. My grandmother and my mother were very codependent. My mother had to move to Houston from St. Louis, Missouri to get away from the controlling aspects of her relationship with her mother. And I recognize that through therapy, because I've taken 
six years of therapy now through this situation that I was dating people who, you know, even though it was my same sex parent, were similar to my mother in their control issues. And so when I started experiencing emotional abuse, I didn't know what that was because I could give as good as I could, you know, as he was giving it. And I was pushing back and I'm a lever. I've never been married. I don't want to be married. And when I was done with the relationship, I was out. I was only involved with this person a sum total of 97 days over the course of six months. There was a point where I knew the exact moment, an hour that this person introduced himself to me. And when I left and all of that, because I, I don't tolerate someone mistreating me. But at the same time, I also recognized that there was a through line of controlling relationships through my history that I never understood because I was never made aware of what a functioning relationship was. My, my mother was single and never married, and she never brought men around me. So I was never able to witness how she interacted with men. My grandmother was at the opposite end. She was married three times and she was emotionally and verbally abusive to her third husband. And I witnessed that. And so coming from those kinds of women, I just had no right reference point for what could be considered abusive. And so for me, uh, once I understood what I was dealing with, I got away from him. My abuse became exacerbated through the courts and through law enforcement. Otherwise, if, if it wasn't for those entities or those institutions, I wouldn't even be dealing with this person. So, you know, Shia, in our conversation um, that we had for the podcast, you talked about your perspective and the lens through which you understood your mother being a victim and how in many ways you as a child blamed her uh, for her victimization. And it wasn't until later on that, you know, you, you changed your perspective and you talked a lot about the role of economic security and her decision to stay. At what point and how did you become aware that that was an essential part of her identity and her choice? Um, not just as a woman, but as a Black woman, choosing to have economic security potentially at the expense of safety and security in other ways? You know, that's a very loaded question, Terry. And um, I'll start off with saying we are each other's mirrors. My mother, what I, what I, what I was shown as normalcy is a man provides financially for the entire household. The woman does not work. And it, it was a bragging right almost. And I think I share with you, Terry, you know, my mother did not get a job until she got a job at my dad's job to follow him because he was cheating, you know, which is like insane. I had so much anger towards her because in my mind, it was so simple. Like, why don't you just leave? You know, like if you don't like him that much, he's so horrible, just go. But similar to what you were saying, Liz, we don't put our business out on the street. We don't snitch. And you got to keep up with the Joneses. So where was she going to go? You know, in her mind, she would give up the facade of having her Volvo, 
with her car phone, with being able to, you know, really not have much going on with her time. You know, the trips to New York every summer, the Joneses mentality of a well-to-do Black family, you know, in the 80s and 90s to um, living in an apartment as a single mom with two children. She wasn't going to choose that. One of the reasons that I say we are each other's mirrors and one of the parts that I I, I really loved in uh, Jess Hill's book was my son is currently blaming me. So when I say we are each other's mirrors, the same exact thing that I did at his age, he is now doing to me. And I find this so ironic because I actually left. (laughs) You know, I left this situation 13 years ago. I did not stay for any financial gain. I did not stay for the Joneses. I did not say stay for any reason other than understanding. I saw this in my home growing up, wanted no parts, packed the kids up left. And the same history is repeating itself where one of the children are blaming the parent. So I just find, I find peace and understanding that it's taken me time to be able to look at the story and really be able to see it wasn't my mother's fault. So that makes me feel very empowered to allow my child, my son to have, because he lives with his dad. I I don't know if I told you that part, but to give my son the space that he needs to be able to see life from his own lens. But it also gets me to a space of damned if you do, damned if you don't, (laughs) you know, like, you know, we make these actions and these movements out of protection for ourselves or for our children but abuse always leaves a trail of despair for someone. So. Thank you. Thank you. So, so Liz, um, you know, you talked about the influence of the church in your own life. And uh, she referenced just now this culture of sort of, you know, keeping things within the community because um, the implication is that the more negativity that you're exposing to um, the world, the more they can use it against you to weaponize against you already. And so what what role, if any, did your faith and the community within the church play in supporting you when you recognize that you were being victimized in your relationship? Or did they not? (laughs) Not. Um, (laughs) And I can't say all, but I like to actually tap on the, the historical. I think people, a lot of times, they kind of brush over that. So I always give the example in dealing with my family on why a lot of times you do keep quiet and you don't let outside, especially anything you did, the judicial system or even community. I give the example, like, so my great-great-grandmother, her and her sister are the only survivors. Basically, my family was the the KKK, the leader of the KKK was actually uh, the sheriff of the town. And my grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, they called him Big Day. He owned a barbecue restaurant, owned a lot of land, was a kind of a pillar in the community. And they figured out how to, uh, he had a big birthday party that day. And basically they surrounded the home and they were all burned, right? They were burned up in it. And so my grandmother, my great-great-grandmother, she, from my understanding, she, it wasn't an option. You keep quiet. You keep closed. You don't put your information out there because you don't know who could, you know, 
sabotage or hurt your situation. So growing up um, and dealing with the church also. So that's that one aspect. And then you have dealing and dealing with the church. God is the forefront, right? If you have issues, you pray to him. If you have problems or, you know, everything can be worked out over time, right? And even with my dad being a licensed professional counselor, it was just taught and it's an eight in, in, in of the majority of Black culture. This is just not what you do. You don't tell anyone what has happened. And that's because of that. Um, my parents, like, even from another perspective of that is even, even from that perspective, I'm looking at if I do tell, it depends on who you tell, he might not live the next day. <laughs> Like, even though my dad is the sweetest man, he grew up Cashmere Gardens in Houston, Texas, in one of the wards. Like, my daddy won't be a preacher. He won't, you know, my brother's like, somebody gonna catch a case. And so you you take all of that perspective in and and you're quiet. So when you go to church and they ask you, oh, how are you doing? And they can see you look a hot mess. You say, oh, I'm fine. Because that's what everybody just wants to hear. And it wasn't until, so my, my blessing was mom. So my mom is not the typical, um, she observes my sisters the same way. And when they start observing things, I never told them, I never let them know. But finally, finally, my mom, she just, every day they would call me, my sister would call me every day. And they will, they would be like, what are you doing? How are you doing? You know, and I wouldn't tell them, but then they would just pour into me certain things that helped me recognize because I didn't have low self-esteem. That was one thing that he could not do. I was, I was everything, but, a, but I was everything, but ugly, fat, everything you could possibly think of. But what he couldn't do was he break that part of me because I steady had people in my ear telling me, you know, my mom be like, I be like, mom, she said, did he say something? I said, yeah, he just told me I was stupid. She was like, are you stupid? Did I, are you serious? And I'm, and so it brought me back from just listening to his side. If I did not have my mom, if I did not have my sister, then no, I wouldn't have anyone. Uh, as far as the church was concerned, even when I made the decision to leave, because I'm a preacher's child, because my dad is really pretty big in the community and I come from a line of preachers, I had meetings, you know, there were church mm-hmm. members that had meetings on me. And so that that component, that part, um, it is only because of of people that knew who I was um, and they can kind of recognize she's not herself. That's what helped me. But in general, the church had a very negative. It wasn't until he started going around to the different churches with another woman on his arm that they were like, oh, something really isn't right. But even then, I had to get up at a conference. I'm just one of those. And they like really talked about me. Like I really went through it in dealing with the church and they talked about me and I had to get up and let them know if you're not happy, a lot of you are abused and you don't even know it. And that was the other part is when I, once I really start learning what abuse is actually like what it is. And because of that, I was able um, to have that support. And then other women start actually stepping up and, and coming, but overall, no, <laughs> I was, it was a, I was a pariah. Really. Okay, so 
So I want to extend that conversation to Roman. In your experience, you talked about this reversal of gender roles in your uh, childhood and having the uh, matriarch of your family exhibit stereotypical male behaviors. With that experience, how did you actually come to recognize abuse then if your model was that women are the ones who are dominant and you know strong? Uh, what was it that gave, helped you gain that consciousness? Therapy. Um, I didn't have, well, I will say prior to understanding the role of abuse in my own life, in my own childhood, I looked up emotional abuse with relation to my domestic terrorist. And I was like, you know, it was like 10 characteristics and he hit nine out of 10. So I was like, oh, And then with some of the things, it was a progression because with the things that he kept doing uh, in terms of the coercive control tactics, I sought out help and I called some number that I found online and the man that I spoke to said, hold on, sweetheart, I'm going to put you through, I'm going to get help for you. And then they put me through to a domestic violence agency in LA. And those were the first contacts I'd had that validated my experience. And it just opened up a whole new world to me because at that point I did not think of myself as being abused. So going forward through every experience I've had within, uh, because I've experienced institutional betrayal of seeking help from law enforcement, LAPD, seeking relief from the courts for the abuse that not only myself, but my child was experiencing and them having, you know, these very pat responses that were designed to dismiss and deflect. I had to seek resources because I'm in California by myself. I don't have family here. And so through years of intensive, you know, therapy, I recognized, oh, wait a minute. I was emotionally neglected. Oh, when people said my grandmother was mean, what it was is she was an abuser. (laughs) She was exhibiting abuse. And so when she had talks about that dichotomy, my grandmother, I was, you know, everything to her. If I said, boo, you were going to get it. Nobody could yell at me in the family. Nobody could hit me in the family because that's Mo's grandchild. And my grandmother was known to shoot at people. She shot at a cousin, almost, almost cost him an ear because he was sneaking in late. She shot at a boyfriend as she was throwing his clothes out the window. And he was like, I'm going to cut, kick the door in. And she said, okay, I got something for you. And these were the images that of abuse, you know, this was domestic violence that I wasn't even aware because in our community, you like Liz say, you keep, it's very insular because we have experienced the over policing and the over antagonizing of our communities or, you know, and that's not the correct word, but just in the, in the response to our families and the sort of mythology that 
develops from that, the, the idea that, oh, you are, you like the abuse. You know, you people, you don't do anything but fight. You people, no, we've had to learn as women because my grandmother was raped twice. So we've had to learn when nobody is willing to protect us, how to protect ourselves. And, you know, there's a lot of mythology around the strong black woman concept, which is something that killed my mother trying to maintain on her own, not seeking out resources because you're supposed to do it for yourself. Yeah, she was out there getting it for herself and for her child, but it was killing her. And so for me, I've sought resources to combat understanding that when my mother was building her business, I was food insecure. You know, I would get breakfast and lunch at school, but I would have to wait until my mother came home from the shop to get a medium-sized Domino's pizza. I had to recognize that the reason why I was wolfing down a whole pack of cookies was because I didn't know when I was going to have them again. Like that, just that realization alone helped me to deal with the ways that I consume food. And so I think the biggest issue is because we are so insular as an as African Americans are so insular because there's a difference I think with people who are diasporic West Indian or European black or or African because of the abuse we've sustained the terrorism we've sustained through America we don't share information and we don't talk about that story that Liz just told about her family's history we don't pass that down because that's pain. We don't recall, we don't call it trauma. It's just something we don't talk about anymore. We're not going to carry that story from generation to generation. I don't know what was happening prior to my great grandmother. I know nothing about the people who came before her because there was so much pain and trauma and recognizing that in my matrilineal line there was a history of abuse from men. And so recognizing through the matrilineal history, recognizing that there is the epigenetic aspect of passing trauma through my DNA, I am working really diligently to break that cycle so that my own daughter, because we keep reproducing women, and I feel like on a spiritual level, we're doing that to get the lesson. And, you know, at this point, I'm like, God, <laughs> uh, I've had enough <laughs> lessons for this lifetime. So help me get it. Help me get it, whatever I need to get. And I've learned so much through therapy that I never would have gotten from my family uh, from other women who I drew into my social circle because of therapy, I've expanded in ways that, you know, I would not have done without this experience. And as much as I hate what is happening, it has made me a better woman. It has made me a better parent because I am more present with my child. It has made me a better friend. And it's just, uh, you know, amplified me. 
I am more grounded in who I am because I now know what is acceptable. I now know what boundaries are. And I am hoping that through my experience, I can amplify that in our community because we are not sharing the information and we're continuing to reproduce the effects of the trauma, not understanding why it keeps happening. Thank you. And, you know, I just want to also add, Roman, to your point that your grandmother's persona that you described, I read recently, um, but I don't know enough about to say definitively, but this persona of being strong and independent is actually a trauma response apparently, uh, right? And, and so, um, so I want to talk about sort of now move to the institutional experiences of racism and um, sexism that each of you have encountered. Um, so starting with Chia, the Black community, I think you've all kind of touched upon, has had a historically charged relationship with law enforcement for many, many reasons. Uh, due to racist policing policy and, and, you know, a history of actually law enforcement being uh, uh, rooted in slave patrols. And so, you know, this past spring in the aftermath of George Floyd, when BLM protests started becoming more widespread, what was interesting to me is that at that point, very few people knew of the name Breonna Taylor. And um, she was rarely mentioned in the media. So I want to ask Shia, we know the media's role in sort of minimizing violence against women and, of course, violence against women of color, BIPOC, you know, indigenous women. But what is the role of Black communities and communities of color in uplifting (laughs) systemic sexism and also sexism and violence within their communities? Oh, Terry, that's a loaded one. (laughs) Oh, Terry. You know, I'm going to tread lightly when I say this because I believe any given day we are all Breonna Taylor. We are all Sandra Bland. We are all, like, any given moment, this could be any of us. And what I personally feel within um, our community is that we've done like a a mind trick of, well, if you get the right education, if you live in the right neighborhood, if you, you know, have the right Gucci bag, if you, this won't be you because that'll only happen to them. These are my personal opinions of growing up in the, sh- in the South. We, Black women and women of color are the strongest elements that every foundation needs. We are loyal to what you said, Liz. We don't snitch, you know, to what you said, Roman. We got a pistol packing mentality where we're going to go blazing and shoot them all down. We are the mama bear. We are the listener. We um, are selfless in putting ourselves last and everybody first. We've conditioned that if, how dare we, you know, say we desire a mate to have a certain, um, you know, level of education. We're a gold digger or how dare we get our hair and nails done. You know, we are typecast as that type of woman. You know, how dare we put ourselves first? I personally (laughs) am not waiting on the community because I feel that until I show up and say, 
yes, it is all about me <laughs> because none of you, not none of you have ever put an ounce of anything back into me. I'm in therapy. I'm doing yoga. I am holding it down. I am, you know, I have proved I'm superwoman. I've proved it. You know, the S is on my chest. I don't have to prove this to anyone else. What I have to prove to myself is that I am worthy. I deserve it. And no one else is going to convince me that I don't. You know, it's okay for me to say, yeah, I want to travel the world. I want to see all, you know, I think it's 183 countries. I don't know. I want to see all of them. And yes, you know, I do have two children, but I'm more important because if I'm not whole, they're not whole. You know, it's okay to say and and not worry what judgment you get back. And I, I, I truly believe that until we start to recondition and renew our minds of our value, no one else is going to treat us any differently. Um, because I'm going to go back to that first statement. When we walk into a room, any one of us could be Breonna Taylor. It doesn't matter if it's a no-not state. It could be getting pulled. It does not matter. My daughter, she goes to a highly elite, prestigious school in the city, and I'm trying to help her understand. No one knows that when you walk down these streets. <laughs> they don't know that. You know, as soon as you say you live in Harlem, they've already made an idea of who you are. So always understand when when we show up, it's almost like the biggest the most valuable thing you need that you never want to acknowledge is valuable because if you let the person know they're valuable then they'll really look at you and realize I don't need you. That is what I feel the issue is. If women of color really knew and celebrated I am dope and knew it, they wouldn't deal. We wouldn't deal with none of this. You know, we wouldn't, you know, I, I talked to you about this, Terry, just a little bit. Women of color are extremely loyal to our men. And there's a part of me that finds um, sadness of the lack of love that's given back to us. It always seems to be some sort of criticism, criticism of like, or critical approach of, oh, well, you know, I only like a natural black woman, or I don't want a black woman that has a wig or a weave, but you like Kim Kardashian? You know, it gets to a space of like, you know, I want a woman that works out, but you like that? You know, it gets to a space of we're never treated the same. We can be the most beautiful gym, there seems to be a lack of acknowledgement. I'm not saying that all oh, this doesn't happen everywhere, but I just see it, especially in mainstream culture with music within, you know, even within the television shows we like. Um, one of my favorite shows growing up was Martin. And when I look at Martin now as an adult, I'm like, why was he so degrading to Pam? You know, Pam was freaking beautiful. And he, he, I don't know if you guys remember the show, but he would, you know. Yes. Yes. He would make Pam, she was a beautiful black woman. You know, he caught her everything from a horse, her weave, you know, her this, her that. So there are these things that no man of color should ever talk to a sister that way. Never. And we all sat and laughed about it and grew up like, no, no. So, so I want to I want to ask, um, give a chance to the other panelists to, to address this question, because you, you touched on so many important issues, Chia. 
Um, so Roman, I see your hand is raised. Um, I actually want to ask you because she talked about culture, um, this concept that uh, we have to protect the men in our community uh, as a way to protect, you know, and elevate the community as a whole. What way did that actually play into your choice uh, of whether or not to report and engage in law enforcement? And did you feel that you were actually acting in betrayal of the community? Um, so again, because my upbringing, and I realized this back in college because um, there were women who didn't know about their bodies, you know, gr- you know, girlfriends that I was coming in contact with through my years of matriculation who didn't know about various aspects of their bodies, who um, women who are girlfriends who were having experiences with date rape. And it just was never an issue that I would ever put myself behind a man because my mother literally would have these conversations with me because her mother was raped. My grandmother gave me at about 15, which I had already been sneaking and looking at it because I would pull it out of her girdle drawer (laughs) and peep into it, but the joy of sex book. And she turned to the chapter on masturbation And she said to me, I want you to read this because I don't want any great grandbabies. So I came from women who would talk to me in very definitive, child inappropriate ways about sexuality, who told me that you don't let a man use your body any kind of way. My mother was ahead of her time in saying that if you are raped, that is not a result of anything that you did or didn't do or what you wore, what you didn't wear. And that is not about who you are. So you can, you know, survive that. It's not a reflection of you. And so for me, the message was, you don't come second to a man. And so when I came to LA, Uh, in the late 90s, one of the first stories I I came in contact with was about Bill Cosby. And this was a man who told me what Bill Cosby was about. And so when years later it happened and the story came out, I was like, yep, he did it. And I had no doubt about it. I hadn't, I, I mean, I just, based on the stories I was hearing around Hollywood, everybody in Hollywood knew what Bill was about. When it happened that R. Kelly married Aaliyah and it was just a rumor, I was like, no, he did it because I've known men like him. I've seen men like that in the community. I've been the uh, victim of a man looking at me a little too hard when I was 15 years old or 16 or 12. So I I was aware of it because my mother and my grandmother both provided me so much sex education. And let me just be clear. I'm going to talk about certain things with my child as well, but I'm going to be child appropriate. They were not. (laughs) Like I was a little, I can look back and say like, oh my God, it's too much. (laughs) But I'm glad for it because I, I, you know, I just, never found myself in those situations. 
and 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 that's not a, a criticism of women who are victims without their abuse. I mean, without their permission. But I do believe that knowledge is power, and that's what my experience growing up showed me. Because I came from women who just said it like it is, you know, and they didn't have time for your feelings, and they were straight shooter, no chaser. And they didn't care what you liked about it or not. But I was a different kind of kid. And so for me, the problem was I wasn't empowered because I didn't like conflict. And because I didn't recognize the controlling aspects. And my mother really compromised my self-esteem because it was always about you're going to do it because I said so. I'm the parent. You're the child. I run it. You run around in it. And so for me... I didn't have the wherewithal to challenge her voice in my head. That's where my problem came in, is that I was carrying around her idea of what and how I should respond. And so if I came up against something that didn't work for me, I left it. I was the runaway single woman, not the runaway bride, but say say something out your mouth (laughs) that didn't mesh with the circumstances, I was out and I had no, and I didn't go back. I wasn't a woman who, you know, did those kinds of, that kind of game playing. So when it came time to protecting myself, oh yes, I'm going to do and reach out in the way that I believe I should. The problem is the response I got, the response in not being taken seriously. The response in being dismissed as, you know, and I had a detective say this to me, you know, you're a good looking woman. You gotta stop this. You know, basically telling me to go out and get a man because I'm there to get a police, a copy of a police report that he made against me, but yet you're telling me that I'm the problem. And I know that my interactions in in society comes first at the perception of who I am based on my complexion. And so even with Black men, because that was a Black detective who spoke to me like that, I am perceived as the problem. If I am assertive, I'm perceived as aggressive. If I speak up for myself in defense of myself, you too strong, come down off that testosterone. I'm supposed to allow abuse because it's an affront to your masculinity. That's not how I was raised. And so for me, I'm going to do whatever needs to be done to protect me and mine. And nobody comes before that. And you know, I get the dynamic of needing to protect our Black men. I'm so grateful. And I hate to put it like this, and I don't want to offend anybody. But I'm grateful I don't have a son. Because that complexity, that paradox of how do you raise a Black male to deal with the challenges of America or a world greater than uh, the, the worrying your, your, your child is your heart outside of your body. I I would never sleep again. I would never sleep. I don't sleep now when my child is with the abuser. But to to think if I had a black male son in America, I don't know. I I, I would probably (laughs) be going, you know, just trying to deal with it. 
Yeah, so um, so many points that I want to follow up with uh, with Liz now in terms of the protecting the Black men, protecting the Black community. You talked about culture, Aaliyah and R. Kelly. And so this goes back to what I asked Shia earlier in terms of what role does the Black community and, and Black men have in um, centering gender justice and their approach to how they treat women in their community as a way to actually uplift their efforts in racial equity. So, you know, there's there's a, uh, a famous um, activist named Kenyette Tisha Barnes who started the uh, Mute R. Kelly campaign. And there's a lot of people who are in that space who, when, you know, R. Kelly's allegations came back up a few years ago, were attacking her, you know, mm-hmm. for, for calling him out. And so what, what role do, does the Black community and Black men in particular have in actually addressing the sexism within that? So they, they have a great role. Like, it's, it's not going to change unless Black men actually step in, point blank. Um, and then, but first we have to address in, in regards to, number one, just like Shia and Roman stated, Black women recognizing we don't have to, to sacrifice who we are or ourselves for the Black culture. We put Black we put our race in the forefront and we'll sacrifice ourselves for the fight. A lot of times, um, just like she was talking about, or, and even what you mentioned in regards to like, R. Kelly is considered culture. He, he wrote some of the best songs and did all of these things. And so the culture was willing to sacrifice black women. They were willing to sacrifice black little girls so that he could be in the forefront. And until we come to the place, just like she and Roman stated, to where we're saying, you know what? No, 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 no. That, that's not what we're going to do. That's not the standard. Even to me, it's even more so with my Black son. That was one of the main reasons when I looked at him and I said, there's no way that I'm going to stay here and have you learn this is how a man treats a woman. There's no way. And even though um, it may be difficult for me, and even though, you know, it may be so hard, you know, for the community to turn, which really in my world, that's, that's actually what happened. I was willing to say, you're going to be able to choose, you know, we have to, we have to at least give our children a choice. So it starts with us saying, you know, no, not going to do it. But then black men definitely have to stand up. That's one thing as a mediator, especially. So I mediate, I work with dispute resolution services specifically for underserved communities. And in doing that, um, I reach out to churches. I speak at churches, organizations, anything in the community to let them know, look, you have to step up. A lot of times, especially when uh, we're going through divorce, separation. No one will know until someone actually asks. And when I ask, it's not about, oh, well, let's run and go call the police. No, 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 no. Because that's not our culture. That's not what we do. So we have to have different resources in place 
to be able to even get them to even admit that it exists. So there has to be a step up. There has to be um, definitely um, men who say, okay, this is not going to be it. This is not the standard. We're not going to let our daughters, our mothers, our, we're, we're not going to do it. And until we actually do that, there's a great organization in Atlanta called Men Stopping Violence. They really, they really do push the narrative. They will even, a lot of times, even in my mediations, I will reach out to them when I find out that abuse actually exists within the relationship. Uh, so, <laughs> so that he doesn't go off and do it to someone else. Yeah, they could be separated and she's safe, but if he doesn't get the help or, or assistance or things that he needs, we're just, it's a perpetual cycle. So I'll reach out, I'll call him, hey, y'all need to come in. Y'all need to sit down. If he needs to go forward, in order to find the details, in order to break down the silence, we, we're, we're so we're so enclosed. Um, we keep it to ourselves. And it's not until somebody videotapes or somebody brings it out that it's revealed. So um, until the community comes together and said, we're not going to allow this, that is definitely on us. If we're saying, look, this is the, the judicial system is not it. Um, the, the system dealing with uh, uh, other areas, they're not helping us. Like, okay, so if you're going to keep it internal, if you're not going to tell anybody, you're going to keep it to yourselves, then we, we we all have to step up and hold people accountable for the things that they're doing and provide the resources and the things that, that need to be there. So definitely, um, and, and particularly, I'm huge. I started a program called PS, PS 82.3, Psalms 82.3, dealing with churches. And I... I hold them accountable. If there is a couple that comes in and, and even if it's not a couple, but I get wind of it, I will contact the churches in that community. I will hold a meeting and I will let them know, hey, there are certain things that need to be set up because there are people in your in your church that are being beat. There are people in your church that are going through certain things. And if you claim yourself to be the love of God and, and of Christ, okay, then you need to step up and do the things that you need to do to address this in your community. And that influence, that first step opens the door for everything else. But if we don't do that, a lot of times, you know, people will try to come in and help not recognize the culture, not recognize the things that are the way that we operate. And, and they're like, well, well, they won't come forward. They won't say this, they won't say that. And it's only because there's no trust there. But if we as a community begin that and really push, like I said, it starts with us. It starts with us and us saying, no, okay. we're not allowed that. So. so in terms of accountability, there's a, as we all know, there's a movement in criminal justice reform to basically in prison abolition uh, to remove the carceral state. Um, and so part of this is the quote unquote defund the police hashtag. She and I talked about it a little bit in our uh, podcast interview. And the idea is that we would um, number one, demilitarize the police, uh, but also reallocate some of the existing resources away and redirect them to communities of color as a policy uh, to address poverty and healthcare. Um, so one of the corollaries of this policy in criminal justice reform is creating alternatives to incarceration 
because men of color are disproportionately arrested and convicted and sentenced at disproportionate levels, you know, compared to other um, races. And so this concept of restorative justice um, has been proposed and is gaining a lot of traction in New York City, I know, but also across the country, where district attorneys, I've heard say specifically, have said, I want to find ways to not put any more Black and brown men in jail for domestic abuse. Um, And so I'm going to turn to Shia to respond to that. Oh, Terry. Um, Roman, you said something very interesting in regards to the diaspora, colonialism, and the abuse that's been ingrained that's in our DNA that has been passed through our lineage. So I love our men of co- love our men of color. I love black men, but wrong is wrong. And I do believe that communities of color are over-policed. I don't always believe that throwing someone in jail is the option, but I, I just believe wrong is wrong. You know, if you strike a woman, if you shatter her jaw, if you break her rib, if you do this, there's a consequence. And it almost is setting up, you know, down south, we call it the good old boy system. It almost creates this space where you could just turn a blind eye to the communities that really need healing and just let them self-destruct. And I personally, I don't subscribe to that. I do believe that there is rehabilitation that's needed. And Terry, we talked about that as well, you know, but not holding any individual accountable for causing bodily harm to someone else. That is not how we heal and grow from this. There has to be accountability there has to be this, this, we can't normalize that this is normal and this is just what it is. And that, oh, poor, you know, man of color, he's had a tough road. The police are hard, mean to them. Let's ignore this. And that's what I personally feel that that would translate into just mm-hmm. complete ignorance of like, what about the women and children that are affected by this? And what does the future look like for these communities? If there's no sense of remorse or no sense of accountability for a being being violent to another human. Well, you know, the this idea has a lot of support within communities of color by survivors of color who say that they can't afford to have their partners be imprisoned because they need the financial support, for example. And, you know, you I, I want to turn now to Roman because um, I know that you're um, a big supporter of reframing domestic abuse's course of control. And, you know, even though there's a, she had talked a lot about the um, physical harm that's been basically uh, conflated now with abuse. There's also other forms of, you know, harms that if you aggregate them from a sort of gendered liberty perspective, many of us in this community, in the domestic abuse advocacy community, are actually trying to reframe that language and and um, get coercive control legislation passed. So, Roman, you know, could you respond to um, why you feel like that would be helpful, especially as it goes against the current currents of um, 
you know, eliminating the carceral state. So I was on a call yesterday with another panel of Black women in L.A. County. This was through the public Department of Public Health Domestic Violence Council. They organized a panel to help providers deal with or I don't want to say deal with, but help providers better assist Black women survivors because of the confluence of all of the factors that we've all mentioned. And the one thing that I keep challenging the agencies about in in this area is the fact, because I know for a fact that the head of the DV Council was not for criminalizing coercive control. SB 1141 just passed. It was authored by Pallavi Dewan, who is the executive director of domestic violence policy at the city attorney's office here. And they're typically the ones who, because we have the, the DA's office, but then we also have the city attorney. And they're the ones who deal with domestic violence because domestic violence assault of any kind is typically a misdemeanor. I have a problem with that. Because with my abuser, domestic terrorist, he has a history with another woman whereby his crime of stealing her car was a felony, but his battery of her (laughs) was a misdemeanor. And so that misdemeanor then became just disturbing the peace, right? So basically more value under a patriarchy is assigned to property, a car that as soon as you drive it off the lot starts going down in value. So women and children are told constantly that you don't have value. Patriarchy allowed black men with the wealth of Bill Cosby, OJ Simpson, R. Kelly to escape the normal responses that they would have received through our criminal justice system, simply because they were wealthy. Because my favorite quote that came out of, see what you made me do, is something that I've been saying for years. The legal system is designed to protect men from the superior power of the state, but not to protect women or children from the superior power of men. We are still chattel and the property of men. It was written into the constitution. And I always challenge white women. You do know that the constitution didn't even include you. It was written by and authored and created by a group of men who came from under a monarchy, who saw an opportunity to construct laws that enabled them and them alone. It wasn't about women. It wasn't about children. And it damn sure wasn't about Black people who they saw as three, they saw us as inhuman. So for me, recognizing this through my own act to protect myself and my child, understanding that the common theme through Canada and Australia, and the reason why we're all having these same issues is because of British patriarchal law, means that regardless of the fact that Black people experience in America the amount of over-policing that we do, 
a black man still has privilege. And I know it doesn't seem as so when we look at the images of a George Floyd, of a Tamir Rice being shot down as a child. I get it. But I know that as black and woman, I am at the intersection of being violated, being denied, being dismissed, being ignored because I am both black and woman. And I also know that the behavior of abusers, and I've known this even before reading See What You Made Me Do, is something that is encouraged through a system that sees itself as the protector of men's rights and men alone. And so all of the things that we are experiencing could have been counteracted if there was accountability systems that were actually enforced. The things that I've experienced through the court could have been stopped long time ago if the judge chose to utilize the tools and resources that they have. It would have stopped him in his tracks, but they're not taking advantage of it because I am still a Black woman. So I just, there's one final question I want to pose to Liz before we have closing comments by the panelists. So I want the panelists to think about um, if they can, one thing that our attendees can do to address this um, systemic sexism and racism in our culture. And, um, And just as a sort of note to the attendees, we did not allocate any time for Q and A because there were no questions asked. So that's why we just continued. But if you end up having questions and you want to email them to us, I'm happy to do so. And uh, in in our follow-up conversations with the panelists who will eventually hopefully be part of our podcast conversations in future episodes. Um, So final question to Liz. In the book, See What You Made Me Do, that has been referenced several times (laughs) by Jess Hill, Australian journalist. Um, She talks about as a policy in the global South, in Argentina and other countries in the global South, this concept of women's police stations um, where women uh, survivors are served by female police officers um, whose goal is not to make arrests and not to put abusers and perpetrators in jail and through the criminal justice system, but to check on them and to have an ongoing relationship so that um, there's a signal to the perpetrator that law enforcement is just one step away. And it's been very effective and um, different parts of the world, uh, English speaking world, or at least advocates are trying to push for piloting that. Um, So what are your thoughts on that? I love it. No, 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 no. This is for Liz. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, let me just say, I love it. I'm with you. No, I love it. I actually, I think, and that's really what I was going to speak to in regards to, um, I have a, I've had many frustrating conversations in dealing with restorative justice because restorative justice was actually started in the juvenile system in 1974. And it was, it was specifically meant to help those those who are going through that system at such a young age to be able, 
you know, to be given an opportunity. And it was never meant for the domestic violence arena. It was supposed to be specifically. And if it, if it, if it did, or if there was issues, then it was after they were already in jail and they were already convicted. And so um, a lot of times they'll take this narrative and then they'll pin it and be like, oh, you know, this is, this is what's needed in order to get over the fact that, you know, half of them in the legal field are, a lot of them are beating their wives anyway. But, but I think it's a, it's a great idea, especially because, and it goes back to the, the point of, if we're going to make any type of changes, if we're going to do anything effective, truly in the community and stop what is happening to black women, you have to understand the culture. That to me is, Paramount, because again, we don't trust the system. And if you don't trust the system, why would I report to it? A lot of times, especially, um, I, I did have statistics, but with Black women, we don't call the police until near death. That's when, that's literally when they they show. It's when we're at our end and we have to get to that beginning. To, so to have something like that in the community where they can see that it's not about criminalization, just like Roman has stated before, instances where, you know, you call the police, they're taking you in too. They're taking your children too. So to have a system, to have something in place to where it is seen as a part of the community, a part of the culture, that will open the door for me to speak. If I believe that you're really for me, if I believe that you're really for the community and, and, as a mother of a black son, fearful out of my head about just what the the trials of what he'll go through, you know, the influences, different things like that. But to have and to know that, look, if I don't do right, this woman is protected, you know, for him to really have that in his spirit and in his soul and to always value who a woman is and, and the way that she walks, it, it begins in the community because we are community people. We're a forgiving people. And if you don't understand that culture about us, if you don't understand how we operate with that and we do not trust the system that was created to hurt us, then it's it won't work. That's why we're calling for the defund the police. That's why we're calling for certain things. But to have a, a system like that, I believe would be paramount to change within the black community. Thank you. So, so in the remaining five minutes, I want each of the panelists to just give one very short 30 second tip, actionable item that you would like the attendees to be able to do to address systemic sexism and racism and domestic violence in communities of color. So we're going to start with Shia. 30 seconds. Okay. Love yourself. Love the woman to your left and your right. Uplift the woman to your left and your right. Don't be afraid to cry. Don't be afraid to share your story. Always give back because someone else needs you. The world needs us, but there's literally some woman that looks just like you that needs you right now. So continue sharing your story and I'm going to (laughs) stop. Thank you. Thank you, Shia. Roman, you're next. I think domestic... Abuse, especially course of control, is a spiritual walk, and I think it is an opportunity, and it's um, it's a gift to go further and deeper into yourself. And I know it's a hard thing to do, 
to think about all of the ways in life that you haven't, that you have forsaken yourself, but it really is a time to invest in yourself and to get clear about the ways that you haven't shown yourself self-love and to real, and by speaking up for yourself, uh, challenging ideas, challenging the system, that is an act of self-love. And it's also an act of uh, spiritual enlightenment and challenging you to be your best, highest self. Thank you. And finally, Liz. Um, I would say, do not live in fear. Remove fear out. You did not go through all the things that you've gone through. And if, if you've ever experienced domestic violence, if you've ever experienced abuse, you didn't come through this just to, to live in fear, just to be behind closed doors. So fight because you have other people throughout the whole world that is willing to fight with you. And a lot of times you may feel disconnected, but just know there is someone who's being told it off to jail because she didn't tell the judge off. You're not alone. Like you're never alone. So never live in fear and, and, and stand up and let your children see how great you are for fighting back and doing those things and laying the footwork and the groundwork for others to come behind you. So. Well, thank you so much, all panelists. This is, I found this to be very enriching and engaging conversation as to be expected, uh, given how I know each and every one of you. Thank you to Michelle for helping to moderate the uh, questions in chat. Thank you to the attendees for attending. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Terry. Thank you so much, Terry. Thank you, Liz, Roman, and Michelle. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.